Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm here with Robin Butler and Sturgeon Capital. Uh, Robin has spent the last 10 years living, working, and studying in emerging markets, including a degree in Arabic and Middle Eastern history, nine months living in Iran, learning Farsi, and the last five and a half years working for Sturgeon Capital in Central and South Asia. This somewhat eclectic, atypical background uh, for a VC brings a different perspective on the opportunity set in countries where Sturgeon invests, as well as a passion for delivering positive impact through portfolio investments. Robin is responsible for deal sourcing, due diligence, and investment side of the business at Sturgeon, spending two-thirds of his time traveling. Welcome, Robin, to Band. Oh, thank you very much for having me and for the very generous, generous introduction. Cheers. Um, we'd like to ask this to everybody who kind of comes through just to kind of get to know them. Obviously, you've got a very eclectic background, as mentioned, but where did you grow up mostly? Um, if that is a simple answer to give. And then, you know, what did you aspire to be when you were younger? Uh, so I grew up in uh, I, I grew up in the countryside um, in England, so in the west of England, near, near Wales. So uh, a long way from London um, and, a, and a very, very long way from uh, the, the countries where I spent most of my time now. Um, trying to think what what I did uh, aspire to be when I grew up. I think I think like all kids, I bounced around between being a fireman, soldier, and uh, whatever those sorts of things as you do in as you do in England. Um, but it, honestly, I, I never I never really knew. Um, at some points, I thought I thought I wanted to be a farmer because I'd grown up uh, I'd grown up in the countryside. Um, a teacher, maybe join the army. There were a range of different things, but uh, I never I never really knew. No, for sure. I could, I could kind of relate. Uh, my father was, uh, my father is still an agriculturalist. So I spent a lot of time in, with them in greenhouses and those kind of my best memories kind of growing up. Um, and, and what would you say just kind of, you know, and this is also an interesting question to ask people uh, and you get interesting answers, but, you know, over the course of your career, um, what would you say is a superpower or superpowers that you've developed? Uh the ability to get on overnight flights and then go straight into meetings the following morning. <laughs> it's, uh, um, it's it's uh, the, the the flight from 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 the UK to the country to go to and never it uh, and it never seem to be at sociable times. They they would seem to arrive very early in the morning um, and leave leave very early in the morning. So um, uh, that's not really a superpower. I think that's just the advantage of uh, still being still being quite young. So. I uh, can uh, can get away with that. Um, no, I, I look. I, I really enjoy traveling. I really enjoy meeting new people, um, and particularly getting to spend time with 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 founders um, who tend to, from my experience, be be some of the most talented people, uh, the most motivated, ambitious, and and really trying to change uh, change the countries, change the societies, change the economies that they that they live and work in um that th that's pretty inspiring and it, and it means that uh those overnight flights are are worth it and um more than worth it and and manageable as well for sure and i think that's a good segue into you know what you're doing now how did you get into this line of work as well as get involved with the guys at sturgeon um so i uh as you may have guessed from the from from the uh, not really knowing what i what i wanted to do i i, I didn't have a finance finance background so as you said i studied Arabic and Middle Eastern history. Spent a bit of time living in Jordan, and then when I left university, went and lived in went and lived in Iran, um, and did that because of an intellectual interest in in the history and culture, um, and also because I thought there may there may be an opportunity having 
this was in 2016. So it was when the sanctions had been lifted uh, and before Trump was elected. So it's a, it's a weird little sort of window of, in, in time um, that I don't think anyone else ever refers to. But um, when when Iran was the next big thing, um, I think it was Martin Sorrell said before the moon and Mars, Iran's the last the last great, great untapped, untapped opportunity. Um, and so not really knowing what I wanted to do, I thought I'd go out there and I could, I could have a really good time, um, uh, meet some interesting people, learn some Farsi and, and maybe be able to find a find a job. Um, and uh, Trump was unfortunately elected two months after I arrived, and all the conversations I'd been having I'd been having uh, dried up because everyone stopped investing new new money into into Iran um, or, or creating new business. So I lived there for for nearly a year. had a had, had an amazing time. Um, learned some passable Farsi. And then came back to the UK and thought, well, all right, well, that was a good time and I better go and try and actually try and find a job now. But I don't know what that's going to be. Um, no one wants to be working in Iran at the moment. So so I don't know who that will be. But the only people who were still doing uh, a bit of work in Iran was, was Sturgeon that had set up a small fund when the sanctions were lifted to invest in Iran. Um, and so I was introduced to them. Uh, went along and, and not having much of a financial background, I, I didn't really rate my chances very highly. But um, for... Whatever they, uh, the Sturgeon founder uh, Clemente saw, saw, or the team saw in me, I, I, I'm still not entirely sure. Um, I can remember the interview. Uh, the finance-related questions were a bit of a non-starter at the beginning, um, but uh, I think I kind of a shared interest in, in in the parts of the world that Sturgeon invests in, um, as well as that kind of willingness uh, and desire to to travel there and, and actually get to know them um, really, really in depth. Uh, they they offered me a job, so that was that was kind of how it. How it came about. Uh, since then, did the CFA exams as a way of sort of retraining from historian linguist to uh, something approaching more of a sort of uh, finance finance professional. It's, it's just so interesting how these things can often turn on a dime. I remember when I graduated from uni, you know, Myanmar was all the rage, and everybody wanted to go to Myanmar and, and do things in Myanmar. Obviously, the story has kind of turned around a complete 180, um, such as the pitfalls of emerging markets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one of the pitfalls, uh, but also opportunities. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that's a great kind of um, segue as mentioned into kind of the overview on Sturgeon Capital for those uh, in the room and listening. Uh, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about the origins of the firm? Um, and also, I'm, I'm very curious about the, you know, the evolution of the geographic focus, because you have a very clear geographic thesis now around kind of four areas but obviously like you mentioned they were looking at iran i've seen some investments in eastern europe uh, as well so you know would love to touch on both of those points sure. so, so sturgeon capital was actually founded in 2006 by an italian gentleman in the sort of late late mid to late 20s who um had traveled through central asia um and had seen what was happening in 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 that part of the world at that point where you had the uh, ongoing political reforms in Georgia post the Rose the Rose Revolution. You had the commodity supercycle driving the Kazakh um, and other Central Asian economies. Uh, similarly, Azerbaijan doing very well, and and he saw the opportunity to be investing there. Actually, uh, for the first ten years, Sturgeon was a public markets focused investor, um, but he saw the opportunity to build a, an institutional quality fund to provide access for uh, international investors. To these to these local markets. Um, so launched Sturgeon in two thousand and six, uh, focused on on public markets, investing heavily in Georgia, in Azerbaijan, in Kazakhstan, uh, spending as as much time on the ground then as as, as I do now, um, and operate ran the business in, in that way for around ten years. Uh, the the opportunity in Iran was was eighty million people, 
significant and uh, sort of well-diversified high liquidity stock exchange. Um, and uh, so when the sanctions were lifted, that was actually when, when, when Kian, Kian joined, the, joined the team, uh, now, now CEO. Um, so Iran uh, or, or a sh- uh, shared interest in, in, uh, in Iran was a, uh, uh, something that brought quite a few of the team together. Um, and uh, so that was uh, sort of the first 10 years of Sturgeon's life. But I think one of the challenges that we always saw investing in public markets is you inherently have a, a lack, of, l- lack of liquidity in, in the local markets, particularly from local capital. So you rely on inter national inflows of, of of capital which the moment there's any sort of political instability or economic instability rushes out a lot quicker than it comes back in um so you have very cyclical stock markets and while you can make money in in the good years you, you tend to, to to lose it in the bad years um also that the investable universe is is very limited it tends to be traditional financial institutions which get hammered by the devaluations that happen every two to three years uh or it's uh, natural resources and really if you if you want exposure to a gold miner you can either buy the Canadian one or you can buy the Kyrgyz one. If you buy the Kyrgyz one, you get expropriated by the government every two to three years. So really, there was, there was. I guess what, what I'm getting at was it was difficult to sell the sort of why now to investors. Why was now the time you should be investing in Central Asia? Because the, all the stocks were very cheap, um, but they uh, stayed cheap. In fact, they kept getting cheaper. Um, but being, being on the ground, spending the time there, um, experiences in Iran, really saw that, as I said at the beginning, like the, the most talented individuals individuals were operating in the private space um, and particularly in the technology space. And this was where we kind of really identified that secular trend across these markets, which you've seen play out in, in other markets. You've seen it play out in China, in, in India, increasing in Indonesia and in Brazil, where once you hit a kind of critical mass of smartphone and internet penetration, you have the foundations on which you can build digital businesses. Uh, and that's where really venture capitalism is then the catalyst uh, to accelerate that. Um, and so we saw that opportunity in, in Central Asia, and that was a sort of around the time that I joined um, uh, Clemente, who founded the business, stepped back and, and Kian took over as, as CEO uh, to really pivot away from uh, from public markets and, and focus on private markets. And we spent around two, two to three years really, really, really building, uh, building our experience, building our expertise in that on the ground in in central asia uh built our team out built our team out in uzbekistan so that's sort of where we where we started from um fr- from uzbekistan which as you sort of uh, you know as you mentioned there's uh different points different countries become uh, of interest to into investors and uzbekistan went through a uh, pretty major change in 2016 so having been ruled by uh, karimov since uh independence um and not being that far off North Korea in terms of how shut off it was from shut off it was from the rest of the world, uh, new, the new president Mirziyoyev was elected, and uh, contrary to everyone's expectations, he went on uh, what you could describe as a bit of a uh, reform uh, reform rampage. And one of the big ones was removing the dual currency regime. So up till that point, the free market rate had been around three and a half thousand. Some uh, the no, sorry, the government government rate had been three and a half thousand. The free market was eight thousand. So they took a 50% hit on the currency overnight in September 2017, um, and that was uh, sorry 2018, uh, and that was t- sorry 2017 September 2017, and so it was the, really that that was the the catalyst for us to say, look, this what what had always been the elephant in the room in terms of being the largest economy in the region uh, or largest population size in the region. I think the potential to be the largest. Economy 
economy in the region, the most diversified young young population, very similar to Bangladesh and actually in, in, in many ways, apart from a bit smaller um, and rather colder at this time of year. Um, and and so that was really, really, really what sparked it. Uh, Uzbekistan was was kind of at the core of the the the, the first fund uh, that we that we launched in 2020, and from from which we expanded across Central Asia and, and, and the Caucasus as well. And, and the, the thesis for uh, South Asia, Bank, Bangladesh and, and Pakistan was markets at a very similar stage in terms of their digital uh, of their digitalization. Uh, I think the, the opportunity set is the same. Um, obviously, the market, uh, the market dynamics, uh, the uh, societal structures and things are, are, are different. Uh, but fundamentally, if you look at um, and I think we, we, we touched, we've spoken about this before, but from a kind of VC funding per capita perspective, you're looking at uh, 10 cents in uh, in Uzbekistan, um, less than a dollar in Bangladesh, a little more than a dollar in, in Pakistan. In Indonesia, it's around $35. Um, so I think that's really the the opportunity. Is you're not saying that Bangladesh or Pakistan or Uzbekistan will get to $35 VC funding per capita, but will it get to five? Will it get to 10? Yes, I think it will, and I think I think it should because the opportunity is there. Um, and as it does that, that will unlock significant value both for uh, the countries themselves, but also for the startups that are operating there. Sorry, I, I went on a bit there. No, but that's actually quite helpful about that kind of evolution from both the public market side and equity side into the private markets, and particularly, you know, the reason behind investing in technology entrepreneurs, and obviously then also moving beyond Central Asia into you know what is now also a significant South Asia focus uh, with what you guys have and and Mina as well, uh, and and just to and before we go and deep dive into that thesis and and how you approach the you know how you kind of operationalize it, um, just could you give us a sense of the scale of your operations now? You know, funds under management, team size, offices, size of portfolio, any high level metrics you can share about Sturgeon as a whole? Sure. So Sturgeon Capital today uh, manages uh, just under three hundred million. Um, across across uh, across a couple of funds and, and strategies, uh, there are six of us in the team in London. Uh, I don't think I'm missing anyone there. Uh, one one based in Uzbekistan uh, and one based in Pakistan as well. Um, so that's that's from a kind of team size and, and size. Today we have 18 portfolio companies across eight different countries, including Bangladesh, Pakistan, Egypt, UAE, uh, Ukraine, Georgia, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. Excellent. Yeah, and. You know, just kind of going into that thesis. So we talked a little bit about why these countries, right? And I think that barometer of venture capital per uh, venture capital per capita is a, is a very interesting one uh, because then you clearly see where things can potentially go um, in the future. And I think one number that really was interesting to me is you know Central Asia, Egypt, Pakistan, Bangladesh will represent nearly three hundred billion dollars. Um, you know, $300 billion of revenue for more than half a billion people by 2030. Just curious, how, how are you thinking about the growth, you know, of the digital economy in these economy, uh, in these markets over a period of time? Yeah, well, I, I think if you look at, um, so, so uh, what is it? it's around um, half a billion people um, and will be around, is roughly around a trillion dollars um, in GDP. Um, if you look at that today, really sub 1% has been digitalized. Um, predominantly cash-based economy still, the gray black economy up to 50%, depending which, which country you're operating in. Uh, businesses tend to still operate using uh, paper or Excel if they're more sophisticated. Um, the consumer is still really transacting online. 
um, buying from the from 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 the local corner store, uh, physically going going to stores. Um, so that 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 digital penetration is still very low. However, if, if you kind of flip that away from their sort of spending habits, now everyone is on Facebook, everyone's on WhatsApp, um, everyone, well, more and more people are on, are on TikTok. So people are becoming um, uh, habituated to uh, using their their smartphone for uh, communication, if you like, for, the, for, for their social life. Um, however, it's still very early stage in terms of doing doing more than that. Um, I mean, I think if you if you look at Bangladesh, for example, you can see, OK, well, the, the steps, first steps beyond that are being taken as people have um, uh, started and, and increasingly using um, Bcash, for example, or uh, uh, Nagad for those kind of, uh, if you like, internal internal remittances to start with and a lot of opportunity to, to scale that up um, in terms of looking at the kind of uh, C to B payments and then B to B payments as well. Similarly, similarly, in Uzbekistan, uh, you have businesses like PayMe and Click which again are those sort of mobile wallets uh predominantly kind of p2p but increasingly being used for uh by by consumers to pay 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 for products and services so it's those kind of foundations that are that are being built but then you look at e-commerce penetration still sub one percent um now will it will it catch up with other markets yes how long will it take difficult to say by 2030 yes i think so um there's obviously kind of investment that needs to go into infrastructure uh on the logistics side there's development that needs to happen on the on, on the payment side as well um but that's kind of if we if we're contextualizing the opportunity i've heard people kind of compare and say well what bangladesh uzbekistan these markets are maybe like indonesia six to eight years ago um but will they take that long to catch up um no i think they'll take they'll take less time because we've we've seen how it works you're not reinventing the wheel here um you're you're taking lessons and uh, and proven business models that have worked elsewhere the key thing is not just copying and pasting is is making sure that those are actually being localized uh for the challenges and opportunities that exist in whether it's bangladesh pakistan uzbekistan georgia kazakhstan whichever whichever market you're operating in is is making sure that those 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 really uh uh, that it's it's not just a copy and paste job. So where where the eyes are going and where the time is being spent, uh, I mean the the hope and the expectation is that the money will follow um, on such platforms and, and such mechanisms. Um, makes mm. sense. And, and then another question. So this focus of B two B software, fintech, and marketplaces. Why these three specifically? You know, why are they the sort of verticals that would accrue the most value when these digital t- transformations take place? Um. So I, the, uh, those sort of uh, those models are, are fairly fairly broad and, and cover cover most um, cover most 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 business models. So while we've while we have sort of narrowed that down, I, I don't think we've maybe 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 been as as, as strict as it as it would appear. Um, I think when we when we think about those business models and we think about the stages that, that the markets we're investing in are at. I think those are the sort of business models that are the kind of, if you like, the first the first layer that needs to be built. Um, if you look at uh, a market like Indonesia or, or Brazil, what what needed to come first in order for more sophisticated or more complex or perhaps more niche businesses to come later? And if if you don't have payments infrastructure, if you don't have consumers and businesses uh, used to transacting online uh, to ordering online, that it, it doesn't make sense to go and to go and build something more more complex because they're they're just not gonna they're not gonna know how to use it. Uh, so they won't use it, and, and you'll you'll waste a lot of money. And I think that's one of the things of being making sure that you're in the right place at the right time. 
um, uh, and with and with the right model. Uh, in terms of the, the, the kind of opportunity, really, really fin fintech and financial services is 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 the largest TAM in in every market that we that we invest in um it's also pr probably the most complicated to get right i think it's it's easy to show good initial traction um in in particularly in sort of lending models because the, the both the consumer and 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 businesses are starved of of capital so it's very easy to sort of build build, build an initial traction but to actually scale it is is a a different a, a different a different question and, and a different challenge um b2b software it's a business model that we like the the strength of the of the recurring revenues the stickiness of the customers when you can get your product really really right and that's that's the key thing is that the, the, there needs to be a, a very strong product that that underlies it and when we look at we've, we've made sort of six or seven uh b2b uh, b2b software investments and uh, they have tended tended to perform pretty well because they've they've really been solving uh, a problem that that hurts businesses. Um, it's a, it's a real pain point, and the advantage of of working with businesses in these markets is they actually have an ability to pay. When you look at the average consumer and and their disposable income, building building a consumer facing uh, con consumer facing product or, or service at the moment is is challenging, particularly if you're trying to be a pure pure play e-commerce, which which we tend to, to, to stick away from. Um, but marketplaces in, in general, whether it be B2B or B2C, looking at kind of omni-channel opportunities, um, layering and embedding of financial services uh, within or on top of whatever the kind of the, the product or services. And you're right, those are relatively kind of generalized buckets. Um, and I, what I really like about your website is I think then you, you know, apply certain heuristics about what sort of founders and but also what sort of companies you want to uh, potentially support within that. And I, I, I want to then kind of use that to kind of go, you know, deeper on that, right? So one of the criteria is solving fundamental problems in large markets. How do you define large? You know, is it a hundred million dollars? Is it a billion dollars? Is it ten million dollars? You know, how, what in, is it now, or you know, potentially in the future? How what what defines as a large enough problem? So really, I mean, when we're when we're thinking about that, is kind of your what you're coming back to in the end is as we're making this investment at the valuation that we're investing at, is there the potential for us to to um, achieve fund level fund level returns? So if we're investing at a at a sort of ten million dollar valuation, I mean, what what does that imply about uh, what the exit valuation needs to be, um, and what does that uh, and and how much business will that will, uh, how much capital will that business need to get to that point? Um, now, if it's if it's a hundred million dollar market, and that business is is sort of uh, or a hundred million dollar revenue opportunity in that market, and the business is already valued at ten million, we see how it's going to be very difficult for it to be unless it's even if it's a sort of fifty uh, percent market share. If it's fifty percent market share, then okay, yeah, that that, that that business will be worth a lot. But how how many fifty percent market share companies are there other in the world? It takes a long time, and it's very difficult to achieve that. Um, so really, really kind of billion dollar plus, I'd say, is 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 the sort of minimum minimum threshold. Um, but it's also a function of of just being a large market on its own doesn't necessarily mean it's the right market to be operating. And if it's a large market with a lot of wealth funded competition, um, you're you're really up against it to actually become be, be the market leader. Whereas potentially a slightly smaller market, whether that's the the vertical that you're operating in or uh, the country that you're operating in. May actually be more interesting if you can be thirty percent of a of a smaller market versus one percent of a of a much larger one. That actually you can you can build a a bigger and and uh, more valuable business um, with more of a kind of long term moat um, 
and uh, with with less less capital that needs to be invested to get there. So it, it's it's got to be large enough, but then we also have to talk about you know what sort of potential market share. Like you said, you know how much capital will it require to get there, and also you know what is the presence of organized competition in, in such a market. Um, another one is high impact solutions. Uh, creating high impact solutions. How do you define impact and for whom? So Im- impact for us um, and impact has a, uh, no, not everyone looks at impact as being something that, that sort of should be, should, should, should be put there alongside um, investment returns. Has it kind of some, some negative perceptions, I think, around being sort of impact being something that should be kind of donor led or that it means you're, you're, target, you're not targeting a market rate of returns. For us, that's that's absolutely not the case. Um, for us, in 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 the markets that we're investing in, to I think to really build uh, long term, scalable, sustainable businesses, you need to be solving that 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 fundamental problem. And by solving that, you are having a, a significant impact on the economy uh, and on and on and, and and on the society that you're operating in. And I think businesses that put that at the core of what they're doing um, are really thinking about how they're solving that pain point have that ability to be to be to be more sustainable in the long term um, and to be bigger in the long term which will inherently mean there will be more valuable businesses um, so that's that's really how we think about impact and, and for us it's focusing on on three areas uh, that's creating employment opportunities because in all the countries that we invest in you have this large young population is what people cite as being the opportunity but it's also one of the greatest challenges if um, the private sector can't create the jobs that uh, will employ and support those people then there will be longer terms societal issues and let's be honest that the government none, none of the governments are particularly good at doing it they, they try but um hiring more people to check your passport in the airport is not a very long like sustainable way of of employing employing lots of people um the sec the second area is uh supporting su- supporting financial inclusion um so in in all of the markets uh, we invest in kind of uh, consumer lending is is sort of from former financial institutions is sort of one two percent uh, sme lending is uh, very, uh, very low or uh, non-existent particularly in any kind of dig- digital fashion um and and so there's the significant opportunity on both the lending side but also the infrastructure side to build the the rails that enable uh, the digital distribution of lending of um, credit scoring individuals using both uh, sort of traditional uh, but also alternative data um and and, and the third angle is, is gender because if you we look we look at our own pipeline i mean sort of sub sub five percent of deals have a have a female founder or a female founder or co-founder um although actually if you look across our portfolio and we track metrics against uh, against this actually the number of female employees is is around uh typically around 40 percent so i'd say kind of higher than than, than probably the, the 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 average across uh across the across the rest of the uh, across the rest of the economy um so those those are the three pillars uh, employment opportunities financial inclusion and gender Excellent. Uh, localized to find product market fit. So going back to a point you made earlier, so do you look for proven business models that have worked and scaled in other markets when, whenever you enter a new market, for example? Uh, so yes, and having having a comparable from another market that is that has been successful and has been, been successful at scale helps in understanding what this opportunity can or could look like in uh, say the next the, the next five to ten years. Um, but just saying we're going to be the X of Bangladesh or the Y of the, the Y of Uzbekistan uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily mean mean that it's the right uh, the, the the right thing to do. I mean, you have to understand I mean, why 
why does um i don't know kind of uh, the b2b distribution model in in a market like kazakhstan work work like it does and actually does it work i mean is it are people happy with with the solution they have and, and sometimes what looks from the outside is when you come with a sort of technology or a sort of uh, innovation first kind of mindset it looks like something that's 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 horribly inefficient but actually everyone's kind of happy and it, and it works because usually because someone in that ecosystem uh, someone in that model is is providing the financing that's making the whole thing go around um, and they're usually doing so at a scale which when you're coming as a startup with maybe a, a million if you're lucky or a few million if you're very lucky in the in, in the bank is going to be difficult to to disrupt so actually what we what we often try and look for is okay not how are you going to completely disrupt this industry? But how can you enable it? Um, how can you be the the sort of digital partner? And I think long term there is then the opportunity to disrupt. But if you can embed yourself and make yourself a sort of fundamental critical part of that economy, um, of 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 that uh, business vertical, um, then then you're you're on the inside. You have a much better understanding. You, you can build a significant business, and, and maybe long term you can disrupt it to a degree but maybe not uh maybe not completely so so that's kind of uh, touching on that a little bit but but happy to, to speak about it more if uh, if you'd like yeah and and you know I, I think that's a that's a good way to think about kind of enabling those those sectors right um rather than trying to disrupt outright maybe in the beginning um and then another one is capital efficient business models are there ways to quantify this uh, or f- from your perspective um don't burn lots of money. Um, I think is uh, uh, what we're what we're looking for. I mean, is that there's there's not the same depth of of capital in in any of the markets that we invest in that you have in developed markets. So if you're building a business which is sort of inherently based on uh, the assumption that you can raise tens or hundreds of millions of dollars every year, it, I think it's it's your while okay yes you, you have that that theoretical opportunity i think you're you're uh, putting yourself in a situation where any downturn which could be a global phenomenon such as what we've had in the last sort of 12 months generally across vc or it could be a local phenomenon you could have some sort of political instability or a a, a natural disaster or your neighbor does something really stupid that scares everyone about you you didn't even do anything wrong and suddenly investors are like oh maybe maybe we'll just give it 6 months and for an investor 6 months it goes by in a flash i mean you could spend 6 months just sort of taking care of your existing portfolio and not even notice it had gone by but for a startup if you're burning a lot and you don't have the you can't get more money in the bank you're dead before that investor comes back so so really looking at at, at business models and this kind of touches on the next point on sort of scalable uh, positive unity uh, unity economics is we're not saying looking you, you have to be profitable today you have to show that path that path to profitability that that sense of okay today you're investing in growing and building the product um but looking at that sort of cohort to say well based on the kind of retention and your average revenue per user i mean what is what does it look like when when you have established customers are they profitable for you does, does it make sense or are you constantly reinvesting in customer acquisition and customer retention to the point that even if you do become a sort of 100 million dollar revenue business you're going to be burning 200 million dollars just to just to retain uh, and 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 keep and keep growing that 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 that, that revenue yeah, and, and that's a good one around kind of uh, 
that's a good round. Yeah, you cannot assume that you could you know perpetually raise money, particularly in in such markets, uh, particularly as you get larger uh, when there's a cliff in terms of such investors. But um, uh, yeah, and with regards to scalable positive union economics, you do mostly seed investments, I, I guess. You know, when should an entrepreneur start kind of showing? You know, let's say positive union economics, um, particularly when you know, uh, when you know, yeah, you're investing at the post revenue to seed stage. When is it appropriate to start thinking about it and, and to start showing that? Um, show, showing it, I mean, maybe maybe happens a bit later, but really, you should be thinking about it from 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 day one. And this, I think, is we look at kind of the. Um, uh, the, the portfolio companies that are that are doing the best, and they're not necessarily not necessarily saying that they're they're they're, they're profitable at the moment or or not, but be, they are kind of uh, data data driven from from day one, and that's that's the advantage you have as a technology company. You you have so much more data, um, and really across every aspect of your business, and you should be integrating that even when you're even if your sample size is sort of 10, 10 customers. How are you looking about that? Okay, the sample is going to be completely biased by by one or two of those, or, or one one event happening. But how can you look at that and say, okay, what does this look like when that becomes a hundred customers, a thousand customers, ten thousand, whatever your sort of whether you're B two B or B two C? Um, so you, you you should you have to be thinking about it from 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 day one. And obviously on day one, you're not going to have profitable. Well, you may have profitable unit economics if you've really hit the nail on the head with your business model, but but most likely you're, you're not because you're going to be growing, you're going to be iterating, you're going to be uh, trialing and testing new new products and services. Um, but I think if 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 you have that in in your mind, if you're looking at, uh, I mean, if you're a B two B software company, what do you? What, 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 there are so many metrics that you can track, and that's why it's 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 a relatively um yeah, why why we find it such an appealing business model is is when so you get to a certain scale i mean it's typically say 30 to 50,000 dollars in mrr it it becomes a pretty it becomes a more predictable business model um it becomes a business model where you you can get to a point where you say with a reasonable confidence if i put x in on the investment side i'm going to get y out in terms of customers and uh, revenue uh, becoming a platform could you define what that looks like um maybe uh best way to do that is with an example so uh if we look at our portfolio company zood um they they they've really become a platform built initially from uh e-commerce zood mall um which they built up they built up in they built up in uzbekistan and have now expanded to the middle east and, and pakistan as well uh on top of that they've they've layered uh, an embedded financial services through zood pay um which is uh, both a combination of bnpl uh, but also long, long, longer term lending with uh, partner, uh, partner, partner financial institutions, um, and they've also then built out Zoodship, which is an e-logistics platform to enable all of that, and also to enable uh, SME lending to the to the e-commerce retailers on their platform. So that's really it. Is is kind of what building, building, and 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 improving and integrating additional products and services on top of, if you like, your your core core customer base. Um, but I think the sort of the key thing here is. You, you've got to have that 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 core customer base. I think once um, once you've built distribution and, and distribution really is king. Once you, if you have if you're a B two B software company with five thousand customers, you want to start layering financial services on top of that. It becomes much easier if you've got fifty um, and you, you you want to start doing it. It's going to be challenging just because you you don't really have a scale or a, a kind of a dynamic that, that that I think means that it can that, that it really makes sense. And, and each of those kind of lines of business then increases the potential opportunity 
the revenue run rate and and obviously yeah. then therefore your exit uh, um, exit uh, out- outcomes as well. Uh, another one on the last one, building and owning distribution. Why is that so important? You know, why can't I just distribute through Bcash, for example, or maybe I would do that in the beginning? Um, I, I guess kind of B, the Bcash example is is uh, I guess more of a sort of pay, payment rails, but really it's 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 owning it's owning owning your customer um, and owning 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 the transaction that that goes on that goes on with your customer. So whether you're you're B two B or or B two C, if you have a large customer base, you can do a lot. Um, it's one of the things that's always been. Um, Always sort of find, find find very frustrating is if you uh, think about which businesses which businesses in in emerging markets have really built significant uh, consumer distribution. It's only really the telcos. Um, they're the only people who really have millions of of, of daily, monthly active users. However, historically they've been pretty terrible at actually monetizing that beyond uh, data calls and texts and whatever. So it's um, if you can build meaningful distribution, then Laying additional products and services on top, um, and uh, build building out building out your, your unit economics becomes becomes much better. But I think the, the the flip side of that is not just going for scale without having something which at scale has positive unit economics. So I think there've been a few examples regionally. I mean, even you look at uh, Kareem in the Middle East, that was purely build distribution scale. But look where it is now. I mean, in, in Pakistan, it's it's massively scaled back because at that scale, it just the, the unit economics made no sense. And, and Uber, when they when they bought it, I mean, I think the the burn from uh, Uber uh, Kareem in Pakistan was about five x in terms of percentage compared to the revenue contribution uh, that it was that it was providing. So that that uh, scale for the sake of it is is not is not something that uh, i'm suggesting is a is a, a good idea but um if you really can't build an own distribution with with positive unity economics then you have a very strong long-term business got it um, i mean i think just to kind of, and well one last question but on the founder side one thing that really stood out to me was anti-fragile if you could define what that looks like um what does that look like? I mean, look, as uh, being a founder is um, an incredibly difficult job, and I really take my hat off uh, to any to anyone who, who wants to found a business, whether it's a technology company or a, a, a traditional business. But there's a lot of stuff that's that's going to go wrong. I mean, with your with your customers, with the regulators, with your suppliers, with investors that you'll, you'll speak to and 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 will say no, or uh, might might invest in your in in your competitor when you thought that they were they, they were going to invest in you. Like there's there's going to be a whole load of stuff that that, that, that goes wrong. Um, but you have to be able to to take 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 it on the chin, but 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 to learn from it uh, um, to 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 really sort of. Uh, improve, improve as a result of it. And I mean, again, uh, the bar has been set pretty, pretty high for us because we've been we're investors into Ukrainian businesses. Um, and if you 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 think you've had a difficult twelve months in in Bangladesh or in or in Uzbekistan, you haven't really compared to to these guys. And they have demonstrated a grit and determination and ability to continue and you're not just operating you're taking care of your workforce in fact one of the co-founders of one of our ukrainian companies was called up to the army uh was fighting on the front front line was was injured is is still is still in the army but 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 no longer on the front line and look in if 
both of those businesses have nearly 2x since the invasion happened in terms of uh, they're both b2b software companies both nearly 2x revenue since then relocated teams uh, refocused on other markets pulled out of the russian presence they have that's anti-fragile um that is and that that's so much more so the bar has been set pretty high uh, but really, the best founders take kind of take it in their stride, learn from it, and don't let sort of things that uh, maybe would get other people down um, uh, get in the way of them continuing to build their business. Imagining, imagine fighting a war while fighting a war, uh, insane. And hats off to that founder. Uh, just to you know, bring it all into perspective. Um, you know, wanted to talk a little bit about GoZion. Which is listed and uh, as a portfolio company yours in Bangladesh, you know, just would you be able to just quickly apply these heuristics in the case of Gozayan and why you went in? Um, sure. So uh, Gozayan online travel agency um, proven business model, which 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 uh, operates across the world. Why does the opportunity exist in 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 Bangladesh and and, and in Pakistan, where where Gozayan has has ex- expanded to because of the local capital controls that make it difficult for international competitors to, to, to sell, sell to the Bangladeshi consumer. So that's why the opportunity is there. The um, uh, addressable market is, is, is very large and is growing. And we all know the sort of uh, statistics around the um, growing middle affluent class in, in, in Bangladesh and increasing sort of both domestic and, in, and international travel. Um, I think if you, if, if you look at Ridwan, you, you have a founder that, that really exhibit, uh, exhibits the, the characteristics that, that, that were listed on the previous page. Um, his, uh, he also has a, really has an, an ability to, to convey what, is, what his vision is um, and also to, to listen, to, to, to take advice, um, not, in, not in a way of sort of just constantly changing what he's doing, but to take it, understand what, what someone's trying to say and then, and then incorporate it where it makes sense or reject it where it doesn't. And that, that, that I think is, is also a very important characteristic. You as a founder know, know your business uh, better, be, better than an investor does. Now, an investor can, can provide advice based on experience gained from elsewhere, but you, you really understand the opportunity you're facing. So if, if, the, if it's good advice, being able to uh, incorporate it, if it's bad advice, being able to spot that and, and understand it um and uh so yeah that's uh i've well what was i um so yeah that's 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 why we that's uh why we uh why we invested um i think the kind of the multi-market presence for uh for an ota in these in these regions is is very important for the long-term potential of the business uh, for de-risking it to, to a degree and also for raising raising longer-term capital as well what i thought was interesting because i know gozayan recently went into pakistan um, another one of your Pakistani portfolio companies, Avi, is operating within Bangladesh uh, through a partner, Mitro. And it, just, it kind of hit me that, yeah, the opportunity set is probably pretty similar across these geographies, particularly, I guess, in the context of Bangladesh and, uh, and, and Pakistan. How, what is the playbook for these companies to maybe move across geographies? And um, Because there's also a danger in maybe doing that too, do, doing that too soon. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a kind of a question I've been been thinking about quite a bit recently. Is um, when, when when's the right time to to go to go into a new market? Um, and I think there there isn't a right answer. I mean, it kind of depends on 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 the, a part of it depends on the, the the size of the market that you yourself are operating in. Um, so if you're a Georgian business, for example, you're a country of under 4 million people, you're not going to build a significant business domestically in Georgia. So they're, they're sort of international by default from, from day one. 
if you're building a business in, in Bangladesh or in uh, Pakistan, you actually you, you will have a very large addressable market um, uh, 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 domestically at home. And in, in all honesty, if, you're, if you've only been around for a few years, you probably even hardly even scratch the surface in terms of what that opportunity looks like. Um, so what, what, when, when is the right time? I think, I think it, if, you, if you're a business model that really benefits from network, network effects by being in multiple markets, so uh, taking, um, uh, taking Gozayan, for example, by, by being in, in multiple markets increases the ability to negotiate and interact with the international providers, international airlines, these, these sorts of businesses, um, which, which, which definitely helps and, and, and strengthens your case. Um, for Abhi, I think you have a very similar opportunity set in terms of that uh, unwage access uh, provision, um, which is why it sort of makes sense to be looking elsewhere. Uh, Zoodmore, Zoodpay, for example, has, has expanded into Pakistan because, again, the, the opportunity set is similar. But it's kind of when, when you get to a certain scale, when you get to a certain maturity as a business that you have a product or service that can handle that and you have a team that can handle that. Because if you go too early when you haven't really sort of wrapped up your uh, domestic market, and then you then you then you then run the risk of of, of sort of not not really doing either if the reality is if you're going to go into a new market you either have to do it through a partnership with someone on the ground such as such as abby um or uh, an acquisition such as uh, an acquisition such as such as gozayan or you as the founder have to go and really base yourself there because it 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 will take it will take a lot of time um, and effort to to crack it. There will there will need to be local local uh, local adaptations. And what kind of a general sort of advice um, is is if you can build your your business at home into something that is that is uh, operating maybe even profitable, you give yourself the um, the ability and the time to go and test out a new market where it isn't uh, where failure is not terminal for your business. Um, so if you've become the largest player in Uzbekistan uh, and you absolutely dominate and have a uh, majority market share and there's no one else around and you want to go and say expand into Bangladesh, you can afford to go and spend three, six months living in Bangladesh, understanding what's going on. And if at the end of those six months you think, no, Bangladesh isn't the right country. That's okay. You still got that great business back in Uzbekistan. It's like maybe go and see Indonesia. Like you, you, you give yourself a flexibility to do it. So, so from from my perspective, that that I think is is the right way, unless there is really a kind of strategic value in in being multi market from, uh, from 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 earlier in your life cycle as a company. Another, uh, you know, you you wrote this really great post recently on LinkedIn about. Um, and I can't pull it up now, but um, around the, the the issue of valuations, um, mm. and and uh, if I summarize maybe and and does do a poor job of it, the uh, you know the point was in you know before 1920, um, it was quite hard. You know, capital was quite scarce in these countries, um, and so there was a lot of, for example, very um, almost um, predatory terms um, for these founders. Yeah. And then obviously the the tide shifted quite a bit during the pandemic when you were able to you know people were willing to cut checks over Zoom calls, obviously the proliferation of different platforms and, and obviously a lot of VCs looking beyond their core markets because of the low cost of capital that allowed founders to kind of build, uh, you know, more founder-friendly capital stacks, uh, you know, but then now there's this kind of lag between, you know, there's obviously been an adjustment in markets where the capital is coming from, whether it's the US and primarily, you know, in the Western world versus valuations in, in markets like this. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's just an important point as well. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, when kind of uh, if sort of seed seed stage deals are being done at um, 
are being done at sort of 10, 15 million in, in, in the US and you're trying to raise it at the same, if not higher in, in Bangladesh, um, something, something doesn't really, doesn't really add up. And, and why, why is that is because, well, the, 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 the path to later stage funding and potential exit is much clearer and has been proven more often. It doesn't make it any easier in the US, but it, it's been demonstrated and it's, there is a track record. Whereas a market like Bangladesh or, or, or Uzbekistan, the, the reality is that there's, there isn't that, that, that visibility on, on funding. Like, yeah, funding risk um, is, 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 is much more significant. And you need to factor that in that the valuations, like to, to be honest, and this is where we, where, where we see it, if any business that exits or any very successful um, or any successful business in, in these markets, uh, could exit at say 100 to, to 500 million valuation, and that will be a phenomenal success. They will have built a very strong business. You look at a business like Cloudways in in uh, Pakistan that was acquired last year, uh, built a 50 million dollar revenue business over nine years without raising any capital, um, and exited to, for 350 million. That gives you a sense of 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 what is what is achievable. Um, but if if that company had raised a seed round at sort of 40 million and then raised a Series A at 100 million, I mean. Hang on, suddenly, suddenly, no one like people aren't really making investors aren't really making money out of that. And and from from my perspective, as much as I, I, I do want to be founder friendly, I have also got to be conscious of of how does this this business make money, and so how do I price price rounds accordingly? Now, I think that the real advantage you have in in, in emerging markets is your cost of doing business is so much lower. Like if it, when you're when you see U.S. companies raising raising ten million dollar seed seed rounds. Eight million dollars of that is going on salaries for their developers. Like that, that that's 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 a simple reality. Whereas if you're in if you're in if you're in Bangladesh or in or in Uzbekistan, like maybe if you raise a million, a couple hundred k might go on salaries for those guys over 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 two years. Um, and you're you're probably getting higher quality, and and you're paying them above probably above market rate and better than they'd be earning elsewhere. So it's not like you're you're uh, sort of uh, abusing abu abusing that 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 opportunity. It's it's just the reality. So. So you don't need to raise as much um, actually to be to, to be able to build uh, build a good business, and I think uh, that idea of capital efficiency or capital scarcity tends to encourage people within reason to build to build stronger businesses. I think when you have that resilience, that anti fragile mindset, you 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 take you take what you have and you and you build what you can with it, rather than thinking, oh, I haven't got any money. Um, this is like how can I possibly do this? Like everyone else has raised more than me. And are you interested? You had you had Trucker, um, and one of our Pakistani portfolio companies uh, that Tab opened up. Um, that was a business that uh, we we invested in 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 last year. And relative to the other kind of trucking startups startups in in Pakistan, they've they've raised a fraction of uh, a fraction of the money. But but today, I think in terms of sort of overall distribution and presence, are larger than the larger than any of their competitors. That's because they I think they've got a better business model. They they've got a more capital efficient model, and and they had to be because because they didn't have those millions of dollars sit, sitting in the bank. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where I see it. And and I, I I'm not suggesting that you go back to those bad old days where where investors screwed founders and took sort of thirty percent for fifty k, hundred k, which I've seen some cap tables across these markets where I just it's it's so predatory. It's so like you've you're you're killing the business. You 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 you're killing your own money. Like it's it's you're killing the business, and you might as well have not not invested that money because. Okay, yeah, you're, you 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 can't value that business at, at that stage, but the reality is, the the 
downside um, of uh, for, for VC is, is 1x, but the, the upside is pretty much limitless. Um, so making sure that at that early stage, you don't screw up a, a, a cap table and, 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 and the opportunity for founders, I think, is, is much more important than saying, well, okay, oh, hang on, I got, I, I got 30%. Look, look at me. Well done. I've done really well. No, you haven't. You've, you've long, uh, if you just could just think a little bit longer than, than, say, the next 12 months, you'll realize that actually you've, you've killed, killed that business. I know we're towards the end of our time together. Uh, one question I did want to address. Uh, you've, been, you've taken multiple trips now to Bangladesh. You, you've spoken to a lot of Bangladeshi founders uh, and some of them are in the room. What would you say, you know, what, what piece, key pieces of advice would you be able to give to them when pitching to international VCs? And, and where are we falling short? Um, so on a on a on a general level, and this actually isn't the, the founders' fault, but is is more of a general thing. That Bangladesh is terrible at PR. Um, most international investors or the kind of international community don't know the the success that has happened in Bangladesh in the last ten to twenty years. Um, I don't know. People in England maybe maybe think of cricket or ready-made garments when they think of Bangladesh, uh, and they they have no other they have no other context. And this partly is like Bangladesh is sort of un, un, unlucky because of uh it, it gets a bit lost geographically it's it, kind of india sucks most of the money for south south asia bangladesh doesn't fall in southeast asia uh, if you compare it say pakistan pakistan gets sucked into the into the into the mina region because of its size but southeast asia has kind of indonesia it has big markets anyway that that suck capital in and so it, it, there is a sort of uh, an, a misfortune there but i think more in general needs to be done on the sort of PR side for Bangladesh, and that's 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 something that we that we, we, we're trying to do as well. We're taking part in things like this, writing blog posts, um, talking about Bangladesh with with, with our investors. Um, um, maybe look to do an investor trip at at, at some point as well. Um, from a, from a founder perspective, uh, one of the key things that I guess maybe not so much for us because we've actually been been to Bangladesh and and um, and enjoyed. I think Bangladeshi food is is uh, probably my favorite food from all the countries that I, that I go to. Um, but you, you've really got to contextualize the opportunity. Um, you've got to contextualize it in the sense of what is what what is Bangladesh? Like what is what is going on? Why are the, why is the problem here? And, and assume that that investor probably doesn't know very much about about the economy, about the society. Um, but it's also contextualizing it in the in the sense of well, what are comparable uh markets in terms of say dynamics and structures and businesses that have, have been founded and built to a later stage um so if you're if you're building a business in bangladesh that was say maybe built in uh in, in indonesia uh five five years ago putting putting yourself in that context if you're speaking to a, an, an investor out of say singapore they're probably going to know that company from indonesia they might have even invested in it. And if you can explain how, okay, the market is different, but that that opportunity set is similar, and this is how that, that business model evolved there, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way because this is how it works in Bangladesh. But you're putting it in context. And that, that I think, is, can, can, can be one of the biggest challenges for international investors is they assume kind of, you can call, if you want to sound a bit pretentious, complete information asymmetry, uh, not only about your business, but about the market you're operating in. And you need to bridge that information gap. Um, so that, that I think, is, is, is probably one of the key things when you're speaking to an investor who's never been to Bangladesh um, and who maybe you've been connected by someone else and, and there you, you've, you've got to lay the foundations. You've got to sort of tease them in with the story and the, the, the context um, first before, before kind of really maybe going into, going into the weeds about the rest of the business. You have to connect the dots. 
right? Um, exactly. On, yeah. on behalf in, in fact, no. In fact, I think for quite a in Bangladesh, you, you have to draw the dots <laughs> and then you have to connect them. <laughs> Good stuff. I think as much as it seemed like 2021 and 2020 were the kind of best time to, to found a business, um, I was reading something yesterday, is, is that actually the reality is now is probably the right time. Now it's it's more difficult to get funding, but if you can raise money, it's, it's, it's also an opportunity because you know how difficult it is to raise money and how unlikely it is that that competitors or other people will be coming to the market in the next one to two years. And I think even you kind of look at, say, last year, there were a lot of, we were seeing the pipeline was, was a lot, uh, fuller of new opportunities because people were leaving their safe job at, at a bank or at a sort of uh, multinational or whatever because because they thought they could raise money and it was an opportunity. But now they're saying, well, you know what, I've got kids and a family and sort of uh, bills to pay and maybe I'll wait six months. And that's kind of your opportunity now. So it's while it's while it is difficult, uh, valuations have come down. I think if you can build a, build an investment case and raise money and execute on it, now is the kind of the, the right time to be doing it. And, and you know that your user, whether a business or a consumer, is even more uh, incentivized for to save costs or to increase revenues than they than they were before. I mean, if you're if you go to a business and when the economy is growing and everyone's happy and you say, look, I can save you save you five percent on costs, they'll probably go. Eh. Uh, it seems like a bit of a bit of effort. Maybe maybe I won't. But in the current environment, you say I save you five percent on costs. Now go, they'll, they'll bite your hand off. So I, so I think it, there is an opportunity there. But 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 you're right. It's like the 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 challenge of raising money is is even greater than I, than than it was before. So that's uh, yeah. For us, Bangladesh is 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 a market that we're we're very excited about the long term opportunity and and uh, will will be investing in over the next 12, 18, 24 months. Thanks a lot, Robin. Thanks for making the time for this. Uh, you know, really appreciate it and hope you have a good rest of your day. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate everyone taking taking time on their Friday to to join. Um, and I hope I hope uh, some of it was interesting and maybe even some of it was useful. No worries. And uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation over some Bangla food next time you're here. Cheers. Thanks very much. Cheers, everyone.